Hi, I'm Jillian Swinford. And I'm Haley Brolison. And this is Mother Nature Will Kill You. A podcast about the most horrific tragedies and the most triumphant survival stories that the wilderness can provide. So grab your backpack and maybe a bottle of wine and let's go on a wild ride into the unknown. Walking down this road I go, but I am going alone, running far, far from home, till I am skin and bone. We kicked Corey off. <laughs> he did great. He was a great um, step in when we needed him to be. Yeah. And I, I thought, I mean, he thought he was very funny. So <laughs> <laughs> no, he did like a surprisingly good job because it's like, it's not easy to step into this. I think yeah. it helps that like he and I obviously already have chemistry. But, yeah. Like it's, it's very awkward when you get started. Yeah, you're saying the right thing. Does it sound okay? Yeah. My boyfriend was telling me this morning, he's like, I could never do that. I was like, it's honestly, I just talked to Jillian. I was like, I'm talking (laughs) to my friend. I was like, there's no audience. It's just, (laughs) but I will say when we first started and I listened back to our stuff, I like, I did have like that uh, stomach dropping feeling where I was like, oh my God, like this is out there for people to listen to. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Scary. Yeah. I don't know. I just well, I we're just in kinda, it now, so I mean, there's no turning back. It's just kind of. No. I just kind of roll with it, and mm-hmm. I, I always really like listening to early stuff on like other podcasts that they're embarrassed of, and I'm like, no, it's fun though. It's good. That's yeah. like why people started listening to you in the first place. So like they're growing pains, and yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so you're back. Yeah, I'm back. No COVID, <laughs> thank God. Still trying to figure out some of the other health stuff yeah I think I told you that like I was having some like uh like hormonal issues did I tell you all that stuff mm-hmm. yeah and so like the birth control helps but um it's I like the symptoms are just less severe so right. like right now I'm like lightheaded but it's doable and I also haven't eaten breakfast yet which is why I have a smoothie here because I'm like oh, maybe I should try I put something in my stomach before nah. I just start you know <laughs> thinking that it's hormonal <laughs> But uh, yeah, I'm, when I was talking to one of my cousins about all this stuff a couple months ago, she was telling me how like, you know, she's like, I'm 30 now. And she's like, yeah, I had this really weird like feeling one day, like I was just like, you know, just dizzy and, you know, and my coworkers like, oh, what'd you have to eat today? She's like, I haven't had anything to eat today. I just had, had coffee. And they're like, you can't do that anymore. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I think I'm hitting that point too. I'm like, I just had coffee yeah. today and now I'm getting like the shakes. I'm like, I need to eat something. I, I don't think I'm young enough to do this anymore. No. I remember the days when I could just like run off of ca- caffeine and anxiety and just, you know, crush <laughs> out like a 15 hour day in college and just be like, Oh, I'm fine. But- I know. I mean, I've always eaten, which is, you know, why I'm, I'm kind of chunky now. So that's never been a problem for me, but definitely like 
staying up super late was a thing that I did all the time in my early 20s. And now I'm just like, what jokes? Jokes. I'm in bed by nine. (laughs) My dog wakes me up at six. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I'm back. No COVID. Health problems are subsiding. Yeah. All good things. Registered for another vacation race. So getting back on the the race wagon, except it's going to be a 5k, not a half marathon. And it's close. It's in the Everglades. So I don't need to go that far. Yeah. And I'm going to make like a weekend camping trip out of it. So it'll be nice. Yeah. Yeah, So that's, that's all good things. I think I told you that I bought a fixer upper. So we close on that on the 23rd. So that's like a couple of days from now had a contractor come in the other day. The whole place is like paneling. So it's built in the eighties and kind of stayed in the eighties. Right. So I had a contractor come in the other day to look at that, to redo all the drywall and whatnot. Um, so that's good stuff. Um, exciting news is I won a sweepstakes for my dad and I to go to Jackson hole, Wyoming. Yay. So I, um, I have, I know I have to FaceTime him today and like record his reaction and send it to, um, the, it was actually through Bush light, the beer company. Yeah. Um, my boyfriend really likes Bush light and I started following them on Instagram because I was like, Oh, I wonder if I can ever like win anything for him or like, you know, just kind of get, you know, yeah. free stuff, whatever. And, um, they do actually a lot of great giveaways and sweepstakes. Mm-hmm. And they do them very frequently. And so I was on the other morning and they had this Father's Day giveaway on Instagram. And it was like only a day on Instagram where you could enter it. And I was like, fuck it. Why not? Like, I'll enter it. You just had to leave a comment with like the best advice, like a father figure had given you. And I checked my phone like around 5 p.m. And I had a message for them and like, congrats, you're a potential winner of our Father's Day, uh, like mountain getaway type of sweepstakes and I was like oh my god and like I got yeah. so ner- I got so nervous I got like the sweaty armpit <laughs> nervousness and then I got so much nervous energy that I started cleaning my house like in between messages with them I was like cleaning things I'm like oh yep. my god did I just win something that's so cool so that's exciting yeah um, yeah and works good busy with that just it's like the worst when like you have no more sick time and then mm. you get COVID. And so you still have to try to like keep up with work <laughs> while you like have COVID. That was what was happening. With yeah, me. that's rough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. It's like, how been about you? So it's long. been like a month. Probably. Yeah. And I've I talked a little bit about like what's going on. Um, we came back from all of our various trips in May and mm-hmm. uh, I, I won something too. Not as exciting as a trip to Wyoming, but I won this incredible, like paper origami sturgeon sculpture. That's that's like, neat. Like the size huge. of an actual sturgeon. Yeah. It's, it's life like size? life size. I <laughs> won it at the American fishery society conference that I went to in Texas and <laughs> cool. I'm very happy with it. <laughs> Where are you going to put it? Are you going to put it like in a shadow box? Or are you going to put it on a shelf? That's oh, too big for any of that. Oh, really? Hang it up from the ceiling. Yeah. That's really neat. Oh, yeah. That's a cool idea. Yeah. Remember in to... Bims when they had all those like animals, like the sea animals hanging from the ceiling and Bims, yeah. like, and what was it? Nunnally Hall. Was it that yes. one? Yes. Nunnally. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's like cool. You have like your own sturgeon. That's just yeah. hanging from the ceiling. And that's it's neat. hollow. So I think I'm going to try to put some fairy lights in there and light it mm. up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Very important. So Corey and I went to that, had a lot of fun. Um, and I've just been like hitting the ground running with work and we're finally implementing a project that I've been a part of like planning for like almost two years now. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be researching, uh, glass eels, American eels down here in Texas. That's cool. Uh, I already got a lot of experience with that. <laughs> right. Which is why I got involved in the first place. Cause we did all of that at BIMS. And so yeah. I've been kind of giving them advice on ramp building and I'm going to be heading actually the eDNA sampling that we're going to be doing alongside, uh, catching the eels. So basically for anybody who doesn't know anything about eels, <laughs> Um, American eels uh, and European eels also actually spawn out in the Sargasso Sea, which is like way off the coast of of like uh, Florida and the Caribbean. And uh, Mm -hmm. then they migrate inshore every year as little planktonic larvae. And then they metamorphose into glass eels, which are like these little tiny clear baby eels. And they come up into the rivers where they'll grow up and spend the rest of their life in freshwater in North America and Europe. And uh, basically in Texas, we have eels, we have American eels, uh, but we've only ever caught adults. So we don't know when, what time of year they're coming in and what numbers. We have no idea about the life cycle of the American eel in Texas or really anywhere in the Gulf Coast. Like they've never caught a glass eel. Really? Ever. Yeah. But we That's have eels. We have them. So we've been trying to, I kind of am piggybacking on a project that's been going on for a little while. Um, basically trying to fucking catch a glass eel down here. So uh, we're in well, the, you know ramps. What the traps look like. So that's good. Yeah. So we're in the ramp stage now. And then we're going to be doing eDNA sampling alongside it, which is something that my office is kind of not pioneering, but uh, spearheading that for our organization. And basically what it is, is you you can collect water samples that will have trace uh, DNA in it. Um, So basically when animals move in the water, they shed, you know, their cells and and therefore you can get DNA from that. And that's interesting with relative accuracy, like within a week or so of the animal being in that environment. Yeah. Could kind of revolutionize the way we sample for marine species. That's always um, cool. I didn't know that you could do that. Yeah. It so, makes sense, but I just didn't know we had the technology. No idea if it's going to work for what we're planning on doing, but that's, yeah. that's science. So <laughs> cool. Yeah. yeah. Science is always about like trial and error anyway. Yeah. So that's kind of what I've been doing right now. Cause we're finally in the stage of like, Hey, let's uh, go put the ramps out, try to catch some of these guys. So that's fun. Yeah. It's exciting uh, new stuff. Yeah. And it's a big project too. It's like a coast wide kind of thing. So yeah. All right. No, I guess uh, it's no big wave safe saving, no big wave surfing in your future. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah. So our topic today uh, we're going to be talking about big waves and big wave surfing. And this is something that I kind of like got fascinated with after I read the book, the wave by Susan Casey, mm-hmm. um, which is a book all about rogue waves and 
like Laird Hamilton and big wave surfing and like trying to find the tallest, biggest waves in the world and how it's very difficult for a myriad of reasons. And I'm reading this and I'm like, these motherfuckers are crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I know, like, even trying to learn how to surf in Virginia Beach, like, there's the joke that Virginia Beach has no waves, and yeah, in between classes, I would go down to the beach with some friends and try to learn how to surf, and I never stood up on a board, but just, like, belly riding on the way in, yeah, I was like, oh my god, like, this is a little intimidating, and the waves there are, like, a foot, not right. even, like, <laughs> I can't imagine doing something that's, like, 60 feet tall, yeah, I know. Insane. Well, and it's like, I don't think I've ever seen a wave that big either. So I I, it's hard for me to like really imagine, like we didn't even see waves that big when we were in Maui. I think it was just the time of year, you know, that mm-hmm. we were there. Um, Cause we drove past one of the biggest, like big wave surfing areas in the world, but didn't see anything giant because it was summer. Um, but it's just super fascinating to me. And it just goes back to, it, it was reminding me of like all these explorers that try to summit Everest or go to the South Pole or whatever. It's the same mentality. It's yeah. just in a very different kind of person. <laughs> the, the chase of the stoke is yeah. what they yeah. say. Yeah. Uh, so we definitely like talked about learning how to surf when we went to Maui. And I was like, and it's not, it's not for me. <laughs> yeah my thing (laughs) I remember like when I was in college I would watch these like surfing tournaments on tv because like you know it's like ESPN or whatever the channel was like Red Bull there's a Red Bull channel on like net on Apple TV or something like that I would just like put that channel on when it was like all the surfing tournaments and watched it and it's just it's fascinating it is and because like anyone that knows like how like hard water can be when you hit it at a certain height it's yes it's like when you fall off your board at 60 feet you're hitting concrete it's not even like you're in the water and they're not even like when you enter water from like a high dive like you notice that all the divers like enter in like feet first pointed you know kind of thing like they're very streamlined I guess Mm -hmm. you could say which definitely I feel like minimizes the impact. But if you're falling off a board and you hit your back on the water, it's a very different feeling. (laughs) Yeah, actually, I was talking with um, one of my friends about this. So my dad uh, got in an accident um, and is a quadriplegic. Um, So his injury is very high up on his spinal cord. But when we were in the trauma ward in Norfolk, when it first happened, um, we were talking to one of the nurses and they were like, yeah, the number two cause of spinal cord injuries in this area is body surfing. I bet. Cause if you hit the like seafloor or like the sand too hard, or if the wave is heavy and you hit it super hard, you can end up bruising your spinal cord. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the reason why I'm like, mm, surfing's not for me. <laughs> Yeah. But there's a lot of parallels between some of these stories that I found and like some of the injuries that I'm you know, like my dad is dealing with, which is really wild to think about that yeah. water has that much power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So I guess I'll kind of give an introduction to 
you know, what, what this is all about, because I really didn't understand until I read about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so a wave is an energy disturbance moving through a medium, <laughs> which means yeah. that partic- particles stay in the same place through a circular orbit. It's just the energy that's moving them around in a circle Hashtag on the surface science. of the water. Hashtag physics, which is not my forte, but <laughs> I never took physics actually, but I think I would really enjoy it if I did. I almost, it's one of the few classes I've actually literally almost failed. <laughs> yeah. That was organic chemistry for me. Yeah. Um, so a rogue wave is an unusually tall wave, um, more than twice as high as the surrounding swells around it. Um, that kind of spontaneously appear in the open ocean so these are the kind of waves that sink giant ships without warning um, and are often produced in storm conditions. Um, however, not all storms produce rogue waves. So rogue waves are hypothesized to form when wave energy is unstable and the waves are very steep. Um, so the wave steepness as well as the wave's capability of stealing other nearby wave energy is what kind of creates, they think, creates these monstrosities. Steep waves are often created with fast-growing storms or high winds that blow for a long time in the direction of the waves, basically piling all that water on top of itself. I'm doing a lot of hand movements. I know everybody can't see, but... (laughs) A lot of hand waving. No pun intended. (laughs) Uh, rogue waves can also possibly form when warm currents collide with cold currents, which makes sense. That usually fucks up a lot of stuff weather-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, though, forecasting rogue waves is nearly impossible with our current modeling abilities. Um, and it's hypothesized that waves are increasing due to climate change. Makes sense. Yeah. So we're probably going to get more of these really, really big waves. Um, That's fair. Storms are expected to increase both in number and intensity with more wind due to warmer temperatures um, and more flooding due to rising sea levels in coastal areas. So areas like the North Pacific and Southern Ocean have been shown to have increasing wave energy in recent years. And it's really not just there. I mean, we've had so much wind this spring down here. It's been ridiculous. Um, So... In places where sea ice and coral reefs act as natural barricades, uh, the protection that they provide kind of disappears due to the ice melting and coral reefs disappearing due to coral bleaching, which is another byproduct of global warming. So coastal areas are going to expect to see more wave action as well. And honestly, the same can be said for barrier islands. Yeah. As that marsh habitat is disappearing So the largest open water wave, so that's a wave that's out in the middle of the ocean, rising from the surface of the ocean, was 62.3 feet, which is not as big as some of the waves we're going to be talking about. But when you realize there's nothing that it hit to cause it, there's no coastline it hit, no seamount it hit, it just happened in the open surprise yeah (laughs) it's pretty freaking big um so it's detected by a buoy in the north atlantic on 
February 17th in 2013. The most extreme rogue wave ever recorded was on November 17th in 2020 near Vancouver Island, British Columbia at 58 feet tall, which made it three times as tall as the surrounding swells. So that's what they mean when it was most extreme that it was like three times bigger than the other swells around it. So that's, wow. they're probably 20 foot or probably, yeah, 20 foot swells. And this was almost 60 feet. God. In comparison. <laughs> <That's big. laughs> yeah. So naturally humans have decided that they need to ride them. Yeah. Cause it's like, that's what we do. It's yeah. a big thing. I want to conquer it. Yeah. So to conquer them, as we have attempted with so many of our biggest natural features before, the question is, how does one attempt to ride a wave that they can't even paddle up? (laughs) It's true, but that's why they have the jet skis. Right. We'll get to that. How does one even find these waves that are impossible to forecast? Right. Well, Laird Hamilton and his ragtag team of friends set out to do just that. And I, I say ragtag with uh, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> ragtag as in like, they're just these surfer, not just these, cause they're like really exciting. They're really, yeah, but talented. Like they're, uh, yeah, they're very talented. It's not actually one of the articles. But they're surfer reading. bros. Yeah, it's like surfer yeah. bros. But one of the articles I was reading, um, it pretty much said something along the lines of like people just think like surfing is just like guys that do keg stands and this and that like no professional surfing has like changed over the years it's yeah like, like, I guess a, in ragtag I guess I mean like they just kind of set out and decided to do this for sh- for fun yeah so also with that though um I read an article that um the, the kind of surfers that do that they call it a a strike mission because it's a very last minute planned. Yes. And it's like, they see the storm coming in and they like do the research. It's like, there's storms coming in. These waves are going to be this many feet high. Like if we're going to do it, we got to do it now. And then they just pick up, buy a plane ticket, go there and go and and do it. Yeah. And it's quote unquote, a strike mission. Right. But it is kind of in some ways kind of scramble together so I just I mean it out of fondness I guess especially because like this is the first time anyone attempted to do something like this yeah so to put this all in perspective wave faces meaning like the front of the wave that you would ride on um of 40 feet are the outer limits of human paddling ability so when you ride a limit (laughs) yeah when you ride a wave you have to paddle up back of the wave Mm-hmm. And then you get on the front and you have to drop on drop in. Yeah. Onto the face. As they say. Yes. Drop, drop in. Uh, <laughs> onto the face of the wave. Um, and so 40 feet tall waves are on the outer limits of like your actual like paddling ability to get all the way up there physically. Yeah. Um, so anything bigger is moving too fast. And if you did successfully paddle out, the wave would likely suck you over the edge before you could even ride it. So Laird Hamilton, who was a Hawaiian surfer and his friends essentially invented big wave surfing with the help of some techniques from other extreme board sports, like uh, like I think windsurfing 
was something they borrowed like the little fin on the bottom of the the board from and and stuff like that I think they also use like foot straps which Mm -hmm. is common in surf or in in, uh, snowboarding um so they and created shorter heavier boards with foot straps um and they had jet skis tow the surfers up the back of the wave to get them in perfect position to ride up at 30 miles per hour yeah so which of course you can't paddle <laughs> yeah i know it's like if you have to go 30 miles an hour up a wave to catch it you definitely not yeah <laughs> so just as the wave peaks the surfer lets go of the tow rope and literally drops onto the wave face so they don't get sucked in which comparing like a 20 foot drop in versus like a you know 60 foot drop in yeah that's terrifying to me um so after that the jet skier exits down the back of the wave so it's a dangerous song and dance that must be carefully coordinated by surfer and skiers your skier jet skier has to be as skilled and knowledgeable as the surfer yeah and typically uh both jet skier and surfer will both have surfing knowledge or be surfers mm-hmm. they often do it for each other so Hamilton was kind of the first test pilot followed by his friends in his circle including Derek Dorner, Brett Lickle, Dave Kalama, Buzzy Kerbox, Rush Randall, Mark Ang- Angulo, and Mike Waltz. They experimented on the outer reefs of Oahu and Maui as well as Maui's famous Jaws or Piahi, far beyond the normal surf crowds. Hamilton said of the experience, no one had ridden waves this size. It was the unknown. It was like outer space or the deep sea. We didn't know if we were going to come back. Mm -hmm. So the sport has a steep learning curve as the price of falling is high. So injuries, if you survive the fall, that is, include dislocated shoulders, shattered elbows, burst eardrums, snapped ankles, cracked necks, lacerated scalps, punctured lungs, broken femurs, etc. So you can really hurt yourself. Yeah, it does not sound like a fun time. Yeah. Uh, Brett Lickle, uh, who's one of the surfers alongside Hamilton, described the hold downs or the time underwater, if you like fall in a wave going while the wave is like going over you. Mm -hmm. Um, He described them as sprinting 400 yards, holding your breath by while being beaten by five Mike Tysons. Jesus. (laughs) Which I'm like, I love that description though. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Injury in surfing is nearly 70 times more common than other fatalities and it's in big wave surfing that it's uh much worse as essentially if you fall in several stories of water come crashing on top of you yeah so the sport grew in popularity in the 1990s however the sport would quickly weed out those who couldn't handle it um drivers and i would not be able to handle that no Uh, drivers and riders had to work as a complete team and be able to rescue one if another if uh, one went down in the surf. 
So uh, then Billabong introduced the 100-foot Wave Odyssey contest in 2001, in -hmm. which any surfer who could surf a 100-foot wave would get a prize of $500,000. So at first I thought you were just going to say $500. And I was like, that is <laughs> not worth it <laughs> at all. I think that it should be more considering how much freaking money every, I mean, I know it was in 2001, but like, I, I feel like you could get like Bill Gates or somebody to donate like a million at least. Yeah. I mean, when you think of all the possible medical bills, right. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. It was a, a dangerous and enticing offer for any big wave surfer, especially like the young kids who thought that uh-huh. they were invincible. Yeah. Um, goes. Yeah. Time magazine wrote about the contest. The hundred foot wave would probably <clears throat> kill anyone who fell off of it. Finding yeah, a like hundred easy math. Yeah. That's going to kill someone. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not probably that is like, <laughs> yeah. So finding a hundred foot wave was also a problem. As we discussed earlier, freak rogue waves are unpredictable, but there are a few places in coastal areas of the world that consistently produce large waves, even more so when a storm system pushes water towards that coast. So the biggest consistent coastal waves are produced in the Praia do Norte in Nazare, Portugal. These waves are caused by rapid depth reduction to the coast as well as converging waves produced by underwater canyons and a water channel, all like forcing tons of water onto this area. So this area holds several Guinness World Records, including records by Garrett McNamara, um, who I'm going to talk about today, who's a celebrated big wave surfer that has surfed Jaws, has surfed tsunamis formed by Calvin glaciers, and was the first to ride a 100-foot wave in the... Praia do Norte in Portugal in 2013. This record had since been broken recently in the same location on October 29th, 2020, with the largest wave or tallest wave ever surfed, uh, 101.4 feet uh, by Portuguese surfer Antonio Loreno. These waves are so big that they were photographed by a satellite. So if you go to our pictures you can see that first picture is garrett mcnamara riding that 100 foot wave i am pulling that up right now <clears throat> uh fun fact though there is a wiki how on surfing big waves and you should see the illustrations that they have on their website oh my god okay. good <laughs> i'll have to <laughs> find a big wave that's like kind of what it is figure <laughs> it out mm. yourself oh wow yeah look at that satellite image from the same location yeah and that's it's from extremely high up that photo like yeah. once you see the clouds you're like oh oh holy shit that's huge. <laughs> <laughs> um and then that other picture you can barely see garrett mcnamara on that yeah. wave it's crazy that's the ter- most terrifying thing Okay, like so in the satellite image, it's like the the crash of the wave leaves like a sediment cloud too that you can see. Yeah, that's what that is, right? Yeah, in and I mean that's got to be like several miles of sediment. Yeah, like but it's, it's funny you said the stuff about the clouds, and I I had to zoom in for a quick second to look closer, and you said the thing about the clouds, and I thought that was just like 
I don't know what I thought that was. I thought it was like houses or something. No, those, <laughs> are- those, those clouds. I looked, I just zoomed in. I was like, oh shit, yeah, that is clouds. Which is like makes those waves <laughs> huge. Yeah. Like if you scale it to like you can see the roads if you look closely. You could get the um the Google Earth up and do yeah. like the ru- the ruler on it. Yeah. So some other coastal locations that regularly produce what are considered big waves um, include Jaws or Piahi in Maui, which I drove by, uh, but didn't go actually see anything. Um, but it's on the road to Hana if you ever do that. Um, Tiahupu in Tahiti is another one. Dungeons in South Africa, Mavericks in California. Molamore Head in Ireland, Punta de Lobos in Chile, and Shipstern Bluff in Tasmania, just to name a few. Jaws, also known in Hawaiian as Piahi, in, is in Haiku, Maui. Um, and this is where big wave surfing was essentially born. Uh, waves easily reach between 30 to 80 feet and are likely the fastest, heaviest, and largest waves in the Pacific Ocean and are caused by a submerged uh, reef break. Like I said, it's one of the stops you can take on the road to Hana, and it's becoming less of a hidden haven for surfers and more of a tourist hotspot, which is why I didn't go, because I didn't want to, like, I don't know. Be a be tourist. A, be a tourist like that, because <laughs> yeah. it's annoying, and I get it. Um, although uh, you still would not want to get in the water here. Um, so it's still, you know, for big wave surfers pretty much exclusively. Um, yeah. So you can see pictures of Laird Hamilton riding Jaws, um, which is uh, such a beautiful wave. That picture. Yeah. It's, it's insane. It's like yeah. something that would be like on the cover of a Time magazine or something. Yeah. And then there's another picture of a surfer getting retrieved by his jet ski tower before another wave hits in that area, which just shows you how terrifying, even if you successfully surf the wave, mm-hmm. you're going to be in some rough fucking water unless somebody comes and gets you quick. Yeah. So, cause it's like all white water. <laughs> that it's like, I don't want to be caught in that. Well, and it's like the jet skiers are like risking their lives too to come mm-hmm. get people. Like I was also just thinking about like the photographers that are around for these events too. Yeah. Like they have to be in the mix of all of that to get all these cool shots. Yeah. Yeah. Which no, thank you. <laughs> Which if you've ever watched a big wave surfing competition or any kind of surfing competition on any sports channel, you can see like these little like black blobs popping up and down because they're in a wetsuit like a hooded wetsuit so they have like um you know their their water housing for their camera and then Mm -hmm. like they're just kind of like bobbing up and down with the water yeah and they're they're like I don't even think they're really on jet skis most of the time they're just kind of like in the water in the water (laughs) yeah well, because they get those like underwater shots or like mm-hmm. those barrel kind of shots. Yeah. You would have to be right there to get them. Yeah. Oh God. No. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, so let's talk about a few more sites before we get into our stories for today. So 
Tiahupu in Tahiti is unique in that the waves literally break only 500 yards off the southern coast and have already claimed the lives of several accomplished big wave surfers. So the reason this is, is because the wave break is caused by a very shallow and sharp reef. So Mm. water depth is only three to five feet here at the base of the wave. Oh yeah. If you get dropped on that on your head, you're done. You're dead. You're done. Um, you're done. So the height of the wave face, which is the front is, um, about two to three times bigger than its back, making it an extremely steep and heavy wave as well. So it's maybe not as tall as like Jaws and some of the other areas, but it's an extremely dangerous big wave. So if you go to slide three, you can kind of see the diagram. I see. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. But Tahiti looks beautiful. It does. (laughs) It looks like uh, the islands in Moana. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. Tahiti, Tafiti, I get it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So dungeons in Cape Town, South Africa are caused by something else entirely. And that is uninterrupted waves born from a wind called the Roaring Forties in the Southern Hemisphere. And we've talked about that before in Shackleton's uh, story because he had to Mm -hmm. cross that area of the ocean where the wind just blows uninterrupted by land. Yeah. And so that's what's actually causing the waves in South Africa and like Cape Town in that area are known for extremely dangerous water, not just from the, you know, great white sharks, but also just because it's extremely wavy around Mm -hmm. there. Um, So these winds causes this wave to hit a reef in uh, South Africa around 30 miles per hour. So, yeah. (laughs) So a wipeout in this powerful wave could drag a surfer like 30 feet underwater. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's too much. At that point, that's a pressure change too. You're equalizing and you can't equalize. Oh my God. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're, you're bursting your eardrums. Oh, all the pain. Oh yeah. And I know because I have caused my eardrums to become extremely swollen during a dive accident that I had. And I thank God they didn't burst. That's all I'm going to say. I, Um, when side note, when I was flying back, when I had COVID, I was so stuffed up and like my ears were plugged up. Yeah. And taking off wasn't really a problem, but when we were landing, my ear, my right ear was so plugged up that like, I had to try to equalize myself. Yeah. Like I was like holding my nose and pushing air out, like, you know, blowing. So mm-hmm. like I could try to get it to pop and it wasn't freaking popping. And I was like really worried that I was going to burst an eardrum yep. trying to land because I, I couldn't equalize it. Like little by little, it was helping, but like, mm-hmm. I didn't get that satisfi- satisfaction from like the large, like high uh, yep. pitched pop that happens like the yeah. squeezy pop. Yeah. So I, um, and that was like 20 minutes of doing that. And then mm-hmm. I was like, fuck, this actually hurts really bad. And I didn't think about this when it came to flying. No. Yeah. That's, I have really <laughs> sensitive ears. I don't know if it's cause I got an ear infection when I was really young. Uh, but I always have to do that on airplane. I always have to equalize and it takes me longer to equalize when I'm diving than most yeah. people. So that's how I got that. Cause I was being, uh, 
I was being hurried by the dive instructor, which I won't let them do that to me again. Yeah, no, you got to take your time. Oh, you got to. So anyway. All right. So big wave surfers are so determined to find the biggest, tallest and most powerful waves that they will even go miles and miles offshore to sea mounts and shoals. So areas where the seafloor comes close to the surface in the middle of the ocean to surf. Some of these famous spots include uh, Todos Santos, also known as Killers, near Baja, California in Mexico. These waves are 11 miles off the coast of Baja and are created by powerful Pacific Northwest swells hitting an underwater canyon. This canyon produces the largest wave waves on the west coast of North America. Cortez Bank in San Diego, California is another offshore spot where uh, it's 110 miles off the coast. So it's like yeah, out, out there. there. You have to go by boat and then hope that they don't leave you, I guess. Which I was <laughs> looking at that picture because, you know me, I jump ahead sometimes. Yeah. And um, it's super cool that that's a thing, though, where you can take a boat out 110 miles and surf. Like you're yeah. literally in the middle of the ocean surfing. Yeah. And it's crazy. It's just these waves that are just appearing random. It seems like randomly out in the middle of the ocean, but, um, this area lies on a reef break that's on top of an underwater seamount. So seamounts like an Island that didn't quite make it to the surface. Mm -hmm. Um, and depending on sea level rise, the seamount has been an Island in the past and now is only six feet below the surface. So it produces these big waves as well. But naturally, due to extreme risk associated with the sport, there are a myriad of survival stories and tragedies that have arisen since the 1990s when the sport began. And today we are going to talk about a handful of these stories. Mm-hmm. And I only put picked survival stories this time. Are you proud of me? <laughs> I am proud of you. I was just about to ask that question too. I was like, wait. I didn't even think about the possibility of her having to pick death stories and big wave stories. Yeah. I guess I only pick survival stories. I was like, this is like a super intense sport and you get fucked up. So right. Like, I I assumed when we talked about doing this episode, it was gonna be all about like Survive. surviving the aftermath of it. And it and that's <laughs> why because I felt like that was more there's more story to the survival aspect because. And nothing against, like, obviously people who have died doing the sport, it's awful and tragic, but, you know, it's like the wave hits and you, you know, hit your head on a reef and you're done. And that's essentially the story, right? Yeah. And it's, it's really fucking brutal and sad to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the recovery process is intense and it's not just the physical it's the mental aspect of it too that really takes a toll on these surfers so yeah there's definitely more more to a story when it comes to big wave surfing survival yeah so that's why I went with that because I just it was like it's gonna be too depressing (laughs) yeah it's a Sunday at 10 a.m don't want to be depressing just yet yeah so we're going to switch off today, uh, kind of back and forth about some of these stories. Cause they're a little shorter than our typical tales of, I was out in fucking Antarctica for a year trying to survive off of shoe leather or whatever, but 
because these things happen very quickly and then the recovery is what takes the longest time yeah um so i will go first cool 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 so this first story centers on one of big wave surfing's godfathers alongside laird hamilton who already kind of talked about uh garrett mcnamara so he like many others dreamed of the hundred foot wave Although, as he says, he's looking for the 120-footer. That way, there's no doubt about it that he rode the 100-foot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as I said earlier, Garrett is the first person to ride a 100-foot wave in Portugal in 2013. And he kind of pioneered 100-foot wave riding in Nazare, Portugal, uh, making it kind of the big wave destination that it is today. Um, Garrett described in an interview being in a barrel um he said it's like time stands still you can feel your heart beating you can almost hear it at times which is like but it's like it's so quiet around you yeah so I'm magical sure that's what that feels like yeah so by the way he loves barrel so much that he named his kid barrel huh. <laughs> <laughs> normally it's like a pet not a kid that they name something like that Nope. That's funny. Uh, Garrett also states that he has nothing without his team. He's got the person towing him in, the backup safety skier, the ambulance on the beach, uh, the spotter on the cliff, a cameraman to capture the moment, and his family to support him. He states in an interview that the hardest part about surfing big waves is the wind. Without a good wind, it is impossible to ride these waves. So let's get into kind of what happened um so on january 7th mm-hmm. in 2015 mcnamara rode a 70 foot wave at northern california's mavericks break um he nearly made the drop onto the face of the wave but launched headfirst over the nose of his board skipping across the face of the wave like a, a stone like a rock yeah um so he's just smacking the shit out of himself god um he took uh, the brunt of the wave's force on his head um and only regained consciousness in the ambulance after being rescued by the jet skier that had brought him up the face of the wave so you can see slide five we've got garrett and mcnamara mm-hmm. doesn't look like a surfer bro to me and uh- i don't know it, he, I mean, he, to me, he looks like the like older yeah. surfer style. Cause it, that's like the style of a lot of the guys in Virginia beach that I remember like the, the okay. older guys, you know, yeah. I mean, he, he's a, he's a surfer daddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then you can see the picture of him wiped out at Mavericks <sighs> flat. Yeah, and he's so much smaller than that wave. The skin burn. Right? I'm sure that that hit her hard. Well, what happened to him is the shaft of his arm bone shattered into nine pieces. Oh, God. Some breaking off and lodging themselves in his, his pectoral muscle. Oh, my God. So the biggest problem wasn't actually the shattered arm bone, though. It was the fact that because they had pierced into his his muscle around his shoulders, um, his auxiliary nerve wasn't firing after a week in the hospital. And 
the muscles didn't hold his arm into place. So he had to go under for some intense surgery. Yeah. He described the pain as very significant. Um, afterwards, he said, I didn't really want to be here. I wanted to check out. He was told that he would never surf again because his auxiliary nerve was basically non-existent. And these nerves can grow back, but it is at a snail's pace. And I can mm. tell you this from personal experience yeah. of what happened to my dad. Um, so eventually, however, with a, a combination of, I don't know how to pronounce Bikram, Bikram yoga. Yeah. We're going to go with that. Uh, massages and other therapy. He was able to recover. Um, and he said about this, I always thought about Beth- Bethany Hamilton. Who's that? The surfer who lost her arm to a shark in 20 mm-hmm. or two of 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, if she can one arm it and I have two, that kind of work, I can probably paddle into some waves. Yeah. It's fair. So after the accident and recovery, fear began to seep in with surfing. Um, But he stated that after the next major wipeout that he had, he experienced, uh, the experience made him realize that um, the poundings, I think, are my favorite place because you have no control. You can't control where you're going or what you're going to do or when you're coming up. And you're just at the mercy of the ocean and it really makes you feel alive, which I mean, if that's your thing, good for you. Thrill seeking to its finest. (laughs) Uh, Garrett though stated that he's um, happy with his recovery and he's happy not riding every swell until he's fully recovered um, and is instead helping his teammates in Nazare reach their goals of riding a hundred foot waves Mm -hmm. as well. So he's kind of, taken a step back and realized that oh (laughs) I don't have to be the most intense extreme person because he's already accomplished so so much and and now it's just like do it because you enjoy it kind of thing yeah I don't do it just to prove something yeah so um my sources for this story was uh big wave surfer Garrett McNamara on his chase for the hundred foot wave by Kelsey Snell NPR and how Garrett McNamara recovered from the wipeout of a lifetime by Hans Ashim um, from Men's Journal. Um, so that'd be that. That'd be that. Not your That's turn. one story. <laughs> <laughs> so I was good. thinking about Bethany Hamilton when we were doing this, though, and I was like, oh, she's, I was like, I don't know if she's considered big wave surfing. Yeah. But she definitely has a survival story in the same vein of surfing so yeah maybe we'll do one on shark attacks later yeah i yeah. used to watch like before shark week became like the stupid hollywood shark week that it is i remember right. watching like all of those shark attack documentaries on like discovery channel mm-hmm. growing up and i was always just so fascinated by them yeah well and <laughs> i, I want to specify that like I don't agree with going after and killing sharks because of that, because it's like you're in their habitat. Oh, right. And you look like a seal. And if they bite you, that's kind of on you for being in the ocean. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Like, obviously, if I got bit by a shark or had a shark attack, it'd be terrifying. And I, you know, but like, I wouldn't blame the shark. Yeah. Well, I am going to do a story on Billy Kemper. 
So he's another big wave surfer. And um, his incident happened in 2020 as if 2020 didn't suck enough for most people. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah, he really got the short end of the stick there. Um, He was at the peak of his career when one small error in judgment changed his life for the time being. I'm not going to say forever, you know, because these people are recovering. Um, in 2020, Billy was surfing jaws, the, the swell you mentioned Mm -hmm. the most feared wave in the world with a max height of 60 feet, which also is clearly not the tallest wave, but Mm -mm. it's a pretty tall wave. Yeah. Surfing jaws was always a part of his life plan. And he crushed that goal by winning jaws four times, which is an award considered to be the most prestigious prize, prestigious prize in the sport. Cause if you couldn't imagine winning a 60 foot swell four times in your lifetime that's pretty impressive yeah billy kemper's surfing accomplishment accomplishments undoubtedly made him one of the world's best big wave surfers he was riding a wave of momentum through 2019 and into early 2020 no pun intended when he decided to make his fateful trip to morocco it was a trip that ended as it had begun which was in a hurry because this is what I was talking about when it came to those quote unquote strike missions when they just they see a wave coming in and they book a plane ticket last minute they go yeah the location to surf it that's essentially what happened here um it was at the end of his season and he just wasn't seeing the waves that he wanted to in the northern pacific and he had been thinking about surfing the coast of Morocco for a while now. So he, tur- he took his current situation as the green light to head for nor- North Africa. Wow, I'm stumbling over my words today. He was looking at swells across the world when one, e- excuse me, he was looking at swells across the world one evening and saw a storm moving through the Atlantic Ocean, which is also how he said these big waves come about was from mm-hmm. storm action. Um, he called his friends up to see if they wanted to join. Surfers refer to these types of adventures as quote unquote strike missions. They plan last minute, pull the trigger and they're off. Billy and his big wave buddies surfed up and down the coast of Morocco until the absolute worst happened. Um, Kemper said this trip was truly a trip of a lifetime, but that was obviously as the trip lasted (laughs) until (laughs) his accident. He took a glimpse of death after a wave slammed him into a rock, which is also what we said is a large cause of these injuries. Yeah. Um, so he also is uh, in these articles saying that he's not afraid of death. He has had some experience with death in his early life. Um, his brother passed away mm. um, in his younger years and his mother recently passed from cancer. So he's not um, a stranger to mourning. Right. So what he is afraid of though, is the thought of never seeing his children again. Um, he yeah. doesn't fear the water. He respects the ocean and all it has to offer. These surfers, I feel like have a deep respect for the ocean and Mm -hmm. they understand the situation that they're entering when they go into these big wave surfing competitions or just big wave surfing in the first place. I mean, I would hope so. Yeah. (laughs) That's why I don't do it because I have a respect for the ocean too. (laughs) Yeah. So he was slammed into a rock and his body was laying floating in the froth of the waves as he was unconscious. So let's go down the list of what happened to him. Oh, he wrecked his right lung close to a full collapse, <gasps> cracked his pelvis from the top hip joint or t- from the top to hip joint, cont- contused a quad muscle, tore his ACL, ripped his MCL. He shredded his meniscus Jesus. and weeks of pain that most mortals couldn't stand for a minute. <laughs> um, no so, kidding. 
yeah, a lot of lower body damage. Yeah. Um, or like middle to lower body damage. Billy's big wave buddies came to his aid and got him to an ambulance. He said that even the ambulance ride was the worst pain that he's ever felt because every bump released more pain and more blood. He was hyperventilating and blacking in and out of the pain, which well, cause there. his lung was collapsed. Yeah. Too. Like, Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of pain. I never want to feel that, no. but well, I will say while I was reading the story, I was pretty amazed of like what the body can go through and still survive. I know we are very resilient more so yeah. than I think that's one of our traits of, of survival as a species is that we are able to deal with crazy injuries and come out of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So after a few days of being in the hospital, his friends realized that they were facing other problems because they were in Morocco. They weren't in the States and Mm. they needed to get him back to the States for trauma surgery. But with his injuries, he couldn't fly in the state that he was in. And this is in 2020. So COVID-19 was starting to close down international travel. So it was really a race to the, the finish line of trying to get him out of a country and into the States again. Yeah. So it was pretty much around the clockwork to get him, like keep him alive and then get him back to the States as safely as possible. So he leaned on the help of his family and friends to help him finance a medevac flight. And they ended up obviously getting him back to the States. But like I said, it was a race against time Yeah, because of COVID shutting international travel down. Um, so when he got back to the States, he was immediately brought into trauma surgery with a doctor that was specifically researched by his team. After his surgeries, it was a long road to recovery. He was in therapy for 11 hours a day for months on end, but, um, he is quoted saying that he just isn't himself without, without surfing. So when it came time to get back on his board, he said it felt like a rebirth and now he's back doing what he loves. And recently the world surf league released the first episode of a six part docuseries directed by Lane Stratton on one of the greatest recoveries in sport history, which is his recovery from his big wave accident. Yeah. And those sources are, uh, CNN.com and surfer.com. Gotcha. That's, that. That's, oh my God. I keep thinking about that collapsed lung that, stresses me out (laughs) I have asthma already I don't need like a not working class oh my gosh okay (laughs) so I decided to focus my next story on a female big wave surfer which there's a lot of misogyny (laughs) surrounding big wave surfing for women just because a lot of men are like no they can't ride those way they can't handle that because they're women you know yeah kind of shit so so this is kind of the story about how she faced that as well as like dealing with an accident um yeah this story is about maya gaviera who because of this event and because of the aftermath of this event is become a pioneer for women's big wave surfing so she began surfing in her home country of brazil at just 14 But by 2013, as a young woman, she hoped to surf a record-breaking wave for women. Um, This is how she found herself in Nazare, Portugal, the site of many big wave records, including Garrett McNamara's. um, And she was riding an 84-foot wave. Uh, Had she completed the ride, it would have been a record-breaking feat. But the wave threw her off of her board ripped off her life jacket and pushed her underwater. Um, The force of the wave broke her fibula 
and she was knocked unconscious. Before she was unconscious, however, she said she said she had the sensation of unbelievable sadness. I just thought, this is it. I'm going to die. This is not going to have a happy ending. When she surfaced and became conscious again, she could not see her jet ski partner, oh, no. Carlos Burley, um, and went under two more times in the waves before Burley could throw her a rope. Um, God. Carlos stated that he could see her floating face down in the water before he got to her. Um, she was running out of oxygen and was super duper delirious, but managed to grab onto the rope that Carlos threw her. And he dragged her to the side a bit so she wouldn't be thrown onto the rocks that are there. Yeah. Um, she then passed out a second time. And after nine minutes of being unconscious, she was given CPR on the beach, resuscitated mm-hmm. and rushed to the nearest hospital. So she didn't have as much like physical trauma yeah but she basically almost drowned yeah Um, I was gonna say when you drown you can still like like you have water in your lungs and sometimes like people drown like after they're out of the water because they don't realize that they yeah all that water in their lungs yeah so this accident was discussed globally um because like I said female big wave surfing was receiving a lot of misogynist backlash at the time mostly surrounding the point that supposedly women were not strong enough to be riding these waves, which is like, are you really that much stronger as a man? No. I mean, these women are at the peak of their like athleticism because you have to be fit to be able to do this stuff. Um, Laird Hamilton himself, speaking, I think specifically of Maya, because she was pretty young at the time and was not like a super experienced big wave surfer stated that she does not have the skill to be in those conditions. She should not be in this kind of surf. So, you know, when big wave surfers like that are saying this about your accident, um, it's gotta, gotta be very like uh, salt on the wound. Yeah. Disheartening. And I don't know that he was specifically saying that women shouldn't be on there just I think specifically because of Maya's inexperience but also like how do you get experience you have to do it exactly exactly (laughs) I mean I I guess you could like slowly like reach to be like 68 feet but at the same time it's like you could be riding 40 50 foot waves and then yeah one day it's a 68 footer and you're like oh shit I've never done this before it's like right higher than what I'm used to like yeah well and I think Nazare is a place that consistently produces those kinds of like crazy big waves. So Mm -hmm. maybe going to a different area would, but honestly, any of these waves could kill you. Yeah. If you mess up, it's not like, you know, so I don't know. So after the accident, she lost two years of her surfing career to recovery, um, but began training again at Nazare waiting for, the big ocean swells that produce the massive waves of the surf spot. After her recovery, she rode a 68 foot high wave, the biggest wave ever surfed by a woman. Um, She waited for it to be put in the record books, but the World Surfing League didn't do that due to the lack of platform and support for big, for female big wave surfers. That's dumb. It's still 
an accomplishment. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So along with that aforementioned misogyny experienced um, by many female surfers at the time, that was another reason why they didn't put it in. So Maya turned to fans for help and they petitioned the WSL to report the record collecting 20,000 signatures from fans worldwide in the process. The WSL finally awarded the first Guinness World Record for a woman in big wave surfing for Maya's record-breaking wave. Of this, really? ex- I, it's like, it's why, like, what do you have to do? <laughs> like, right? You don't have to be a dick about it because it was captured on camera, and so they have it's all official. Yeah, you know, like. It, it's uh, not like it's some like story passed down between generations. You can't right. confirm it ever happened. So of this experience, she said, I believed it was only right that the record should exist for women as well as men. Yeah, of course. Uh, that it was me who did it. I'm not surprised. I was surprised to be the first one. I've been doing this for over 10 years. She also stated that the accident that had happened several years before was likely the real driver for her. The backlash she experienced only made her want it more. And following her recovery, she set an important milestone for female big wave surfers across the globe. And hopefully in due time, her record will be broken time and time again. Mm -hmm. So that was Maya Gabiera. I just thought this is it. I'm going to die by Lou Boyd. Um, from the Red Bulletin. Sorry, these are my sources. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and then my red badge of courage when female big wave surfers wipe out and get back in by Jim Kempton of The Guardian. Nice. And that is Maya Gabiera. Nice, nice. Um, my next story actually takes place in the same location. Of- yeah. Seems <laughs> yes, like a, there's a lot happening in Nazare. Yeah. Portugal. Yeah, Nazare. Uh, yeah. Portugal. I said Nazare. <laughs> I don't know how to <laughs> pronounce things. I was playing Wordle the other day and it was a word that like, I, it was apron was the word. Yeah. And I was trying to guess, you know, the word and I had been like putting in letters and I was like, apron? What the fuck? Like, I was like, oh, apron, apron. <laughs> <laughs> like it was like when I was trying to guess it, I was enunciating the words wrong just because of the letters I had. And I was like, golly, I'm idiot. Um, but anyway, um, so my story is about Andrew Cotton and, um, he was also in Portugal. This was on November 8th, 2017. Andrew was supposed to be riding a life-changing wave. And I guess you can say that he still managed that because, uh, what happened that day definitely changed his life. Mm. Him and his friends were, um, out around nine 30 in the morning, taking some turns, surfing, diving, driving jet skis and doing safety. Like, you know, we had talked about how when you're on a jet ski, you more than likely have surfing experience too. So right. they were all taking turns, uh, doing each of those <clears throat> activities. Andrew was four to five ways in his, into his second turn. So it was about 10 to 10 30 in the morning, obviously like an hour, about an hour had passed since they started. Mm-hmm. When he saw what was a dream wave coming in, he described it as the Holy grail with hollow, heavy inside lefts, whatever that means, but that's, that's what he said. Um, surfer talk, <laughs> surfer, yeah, surfer talk. I was like, I need to learn surfer talk, but I'm never going to use it again in my life. It's fine. Um, <laughs> his friend towed him in on the jet ski. 
And then Andrew lets go of the rope and he says that he came off the bottom a little bit too low. So he said his line probably wasn't at the greatest, uh, which when you're getting thrown into these waves off a of jet ski, it's pretty important that your speed and angle is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, also known as their quote unquote line. <clears throat> the wave changed in an instant, he said, and rather than barreling into rather than barreling, it looked like it was going to pinch. So instead of like the round barrels, you see it mm-hmm. was squeezing in. So it went from the best looking wave that he had ever seen to the worst looking wave in a millisecond. And cool, Andrew cool, was cool. The yeah. Cool. 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 Like just definitely <laughs> like, Oh shit. No, an Oh shit moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Andrew was in the worst spot. He thought, crap, I just fully stuffed myself into this wave and I've got nowhere to go now. So he jumped off his board waiting for impact. And he said that when that in big wave surfing, when you jump off your board, you get quote unquote pounded. So Mm -hmm. you get sort of a washing machine effect and then you pop back up and that's what he was waiting to have happen. But that never happened. The wave crushed him. And the following is how he recounts the event. He says, there was a lot of pain and shock. You go into survival mode. We wear inflatable vests under our suits, but the pain was so bad. I couldn't even manage to inflate the vest. Mm-hmm. I finally surfaced for a millisecond. Then the next wave behind caught me and took me out as well. So similar to Maya, right? Yeah. Pounded. It was a two wave wipeout. I broke my back on the first wave. I was underwater for some time. Then the next wave mowed me down. It was on the second wave that I managed to compose myself, pull my vest, and they managed to rescue me. His friend got him on the jet ski and he could tell that Andrew was in pain, Mm -hmm. but he didn't know what was going on. Yeah. As they got to the shore, they got hit with another wave, which knocked them both off the jet ski. Oh my God. (laughs) Luckily they were close to the shore. So they got washed up and he just had this gut feeling that he couldn't stand or walk. Mm -hmm. So in the water, he had gone into survival mode, but now that he was on the beach, he was scared. A lifeguard and another surfer ran down and dragged him up the beach. They stabilized him and cut his wetsuit off. The ambulance was there within minutes and they put a collar on him and then took him straight to the hospital. Yeah. He doesn't speak any Portuguese. And so he was having a hard time figuring out what exactly was wrong with him. Yeah. Um, They scanned his back and said that he had a compression fracture. Jeez. He was trying to work out, quote unquote, okay, what does that mean? What's the scenario going to be now? My thoughts ran wild as I didn't know what the prognosis was. Yeah. Because um, <clears throat> anytime it's back stuff, you got to start worrying about being paralyzed, which mm-hmm. yeah, I'm very familiar. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you know that. <laughs> yep. Um, so he didn't have any of his belongings on him because he just pretty much got transported right from the beach to the hospital. Right. Yeah. And So he couldn't tell his wife that he was in the hospital. She actually found out over social media because people were posting about it. And one of her friends called her and said, Hey, your husband got hit and is in the hospital in Portugal. Yeah. Um, And then when he finally, when Andrew finally got a hold of his family, his son, who was five at the time, this is super cute, but also super sad. um, He goes, daddy, are you going to be in a wheelchair? Like, oh. oh my god, <laughs> oh my god, yeah, I was like that poor kid because that's like what you think of, like, as a yeah. kid when you break your back, you automatically go like mm-hmm. wheelchair. Yeah, um, I'm sure his family was probably saying things to him, like mentally preparing their kid to, like, daddy might not be able to walk when you see him again, yeah. Know? Um, 
So Andrew was in the hospital for two weeks in Portugal. And at first he was distracted from the pain because he was doing a lot of interviews and getting a lot of messages. Mm -hmm. Um, But eventually as all of that slowed down, he met the reality and intrusive thoughts began and he started to worry if he would ever walk again. Yeah. His friend's wife started to fill him in on the power of positivity. She said, people will be giving you the worst case scenarios, referring to your back as broken, but you have to turn it around and refer to your back as healing that it's going to get better. Mm -hmm. And so he says that the power of positivity helped him but he knew he still wouldn't be able to surf for a while. Right. Eventually he was flown back from Portugal to see a spinal specialist in Manchester. Um, All of the support was organized by Red Bull who he's sponsored by. Mm -hmm. And in two weeks he was on a stationary bike training and was instructed on the next six months of physical therapy. Yeah. He he said he wasn't scared, but lucky because if he hadn't been on the team Red Bull as a Red Bull athlete, he would have just been discharged in Portugal and, Yep. sent on his way. So, yep. you know, power of positivity there He's mm. lucky that he had the resources. Yeah. It helps to have money. Uh, yeah. does. <laughs> he said the mental healing was the hardest. He had low points, but the friends, but he had the friends to lean on. Mm-hmm. He went through periods of deleting social media because as he was recovering and couldn't do anything, he was having FOMO from seeing everyone right. else doing stuff and just like living their life normally, obviously. Right. Um, so he got through his therapy and was back surfing big waves within the year. He wasn't scared, but his mind did raise a few questions. Like, is this my path? Is this what I really want to do? But as soon as he got back out there and as soon as the first big swell came in, he became comfortable again very quickly. And he realized that he's doing it for the right reasons because he wants it. So you're like, you know, we said before, we're not trying to prove anything to anyone. They're just doing it for them. Yeah. And coming back from the injury was about learning to enjoy the things he can do and not thinking about the things that you can't do. There's so much negativity in your head in any situation, but you just have to block out that negativity and focus on what's possible. So two years on he's competed in the WSL Nazar toe challenge and was super happy with his results. He's probably ridden some of the bigger waves in his career this season or the season at the time when it was written. I think this was written in 2020. Now I, or now he's generally feeling positive and working on a few filming projects that has been good for him. And he just feels very lucky to be back. Something he won't take for granted. Yeah. I feel like a lot of these guys have similar stories like this. Like if you are in the game for long enough, it's going to you're going to get got by yeah. a wave at some point in like, mm-hmm. you just got to hope that it's not your spinal cord. I think there's, it's funny, like so much of this is just reminding me of like, like what we went through as a family um, yeah. with my dad. And um, obviously he is still very much in a wheelchair and um, still recovering because nerve damage yeah. takes so long to heal and I don't know it's just it's just interesting the similarities this next story that I'm going to talk about has a lot of similarities and um is is very uh it's intense um so can I do my source real quick for Andrew oh yeah yeah I'm sorry Sorry, I forgot (laughs) (laughs) um it was from redbull.com okay so that's the source there so the story describes the accident of Sean Dollar, 
who was not even a professional surfer when he won the XXL award for biggest paddle. So he surfed a 55 weight, 55 foot wave at Mavericks, which is pretty small, it's smaller, you know, compared to some of the waves we've been talking about, but he managed to paddle that wave on his own without the use of a jet ski. God. So he's very talented, not a professional. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think after this, he started, you know, becoming more of a professional. So uh, Sean won it again the following year, paddling a 62 foot wave at Cordes Bank, which is that one that's way, way out in the middle of the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, and he won a Guinness World Record for biggest wave ever paddled into. Nice. So he was fairly, like already fairly well known and awarded before his disastrous experience off the California coast. So Sean was surfing in 2015 in an undisclosed spot off the coast of California. So the spot is undisclosed because it's still like a secret surf spot and was pretty remote. So Sean was out surfing alone while his partner, Griffin Guess, was watching from the nearby shoreline when he got caught inside the trough of a big set of waves. So a trough is kind of like the, the deep part in between two wave peaks. Mm-hmm. Um, so he dove under a line of white water um, from his board to get underwater as far as possible for that wave hit so he could avoid getting pummeled by it um, and immediately smashed his head into a car-sized pinnacle of rock oh, that he God. didn't know was there. Jesus. So this shattered his neck in four places and caused him to suffer a traumatic brain injury or TBI. Mm-hmm. So Sean stated that in that moment, he heard the breaks in my neck and I immediately wasn't sure if I was paralyzed or not. So the injury drained his arms and legs of feeling, Sean said. I knew I had lost a lot of mobility. And the scary part of that was I couldn't get washed back onto the beach because he was surrounded by all these rocks. So he was in an extremely dangerous situation where really the only way to get out of it was to swim back out through the waves and then swim parallel until you got to a part where you could come into the beach. Mm-hmm. Um, so amazingly, he was still able to paddle out of the surf despite his injuries, even though he had lost a lot of feeling in his limbs, he could still move them, move them. Um, but he really wasn't sure that everything was working on his body. Um, so Sean Dollar managed to reach the shore, um, with head trauma and a concussion, uh, Griffin Guess and the others that have watched the accident unfold scrambled down the cliff to help Sean walk about a mile up the cliff because it's on California. Yeah. So there's like a little beach and a big cliff and that's how you get back to your fucking car. Mm-hmm. Right. So so he's got a neck injury and a concussion and a TBI and has to walk up a cliff. Yeah. Um, and Griffin Guess said of the excruciating experience, with all the support he had um, that we gave him, he still had to do it himself. And it's a miracle he didn't get paralyzed on the way up. He is lucky yeah. 
to be alive. Concussion didn't like make him misstep and yeah, fall down the cliff. Right. So after he reached the top of the cliff, he was driven to the hospital and he was stabilized with a neck brace. So the break didn't, wasn't structural and he didn't damage his spinal column, which is the only reason he came so close to essentially being in the same situation that my dad is. Yeah. So it's probably uh, like an inch. Yeah. Less. And it's because, you know, those bones that fractured in his neck could have been what damaged his spinal column, Mm -hmm. essentially. So he had to be in a neck brace to keep the movement down to a minimum. So he didn't injure himself to the point where he would be paralyzed. Mm -hmm. Um, So he could have become paralyzed after the accident, essentially, um, and was extremely lucky to survive. So he also had a TBI, which uh, my dad also got a TBI, probably got several um, when he was uh, stationed in Iraq um, Mm. during all of the explosions and stuff that he experienced there. So um, we've experienced with that as well. So this is like a very personal. personal, uh, So discussing his TBI, Dollar says... I was not myself. It was freaky. I was depressed. I wasn't sleeping. I couldn't think clearly. Couldn't work or even answer emails. I had massive anxiety. I wasn't yeah. sleeping and had severe migraines every day, throwing up from them. And this is absolutely like what happened. It's similar to like PTSD. And I think it's also, you know, if you have a TBI and if you have PTSD, it kind of combines to create this kind of like personality shift that happens. Yeah. Well, like with concussions, like you're not supposed to go to sleep within like what first 24 hours because you could be unconscious. So it's like, if you have that brain injury and then yeah, the PTSD, you're like always wondering, like, should I go to sleep now? Am I going to wake up in the morning? Yeah. I mean, and it changes your personality in a big way as well. So So when he went in for an MRI, the doctors were shocked. His brain looked like that of a pro football player because because of the hit. Yeah. Well, and also like previous concussions from other big wave accidents as well as his current major accident. So, and it turns out, I read this article about this, that concussions are common in big wave surfing. Like hit the water hard. Yeah. Extremely common. I mean, half of these people we talked about today had concussions as well as like all these other injuries so um so like a big swell and mavericks for example can produce up to 10 brain injuries a day i'm sure yeah so it's super common and i don't think it's really talked about because big wave surfing doesn't have like as high of a profile as like football does that and I don't think people think of surfing as a contact sport because it's not a contact with another person, but you're contacting the water very hard. Right. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so the doctors use hyperbaric oxygen therapy to improve circulation in the brain. Um, in this therapy, the patient is placed in a tube like chamber where compression pushes blood and pure oxygen through the brain. Um, so, kind of like, like hyperbaric treatment for like the bends. Yeah. It sounds like, 
so Dollar did 40 treatments back to back and was improving daily, but said, I probably won't go back to surfing big waves. My brain is too fragile and I can't take another concussion. Well, yeah, I feel it's like second impact syndrome. Like yeah. if you're an athlete and you get, there was a girl I played soccer with in college and she had one too many concussions and the doctor told her like, you can't play again. Yeah. Because like, if you get hit in the head again, you're going to die. Right. So he said, I feel like I've kind of moved on. I'm really lucky. I didn't die that day. I fought so hard to get here. Talk about his recovery. And I'm really happy to be here. I'm just grateful. I think that's another important thing to kind of take away from this whole talking about big wave surfing. Cause, um, I think it's also okay to not go back. Yeah. Be like, you know, I'm good. Cause like I had, I had an accident that changed my life. Like, I'm okay. Don't need right. That right. And it's like, you know, I, I think at some point a lot of people kind of realize that I know I want to be here for my kids and yeah. be able to like see the rest of my life. Right. You know? So, and I, I don't think that walking away from the sport is like a failure of any no. sort. So I, I, I like that story because I wanted to to talk about, you know, an, an accident that like caused them to not want to do it. Again. <laughs> Cause yeah. like, I feel like that's the rational response to this, yeah. but I don't know. It's a very extreme sport. And so I understand that these people have a very different outlook on it than we do. Yeah. And, and after like years of training and like, it's like the buildup, right. It's like, you spent all of this time trying yeah. to accomplish this goal and it's like, you can't rest until the goals accomplished so it's like even if you do have a tragic incident you still need to go back out there and try to close the book on it you know right and I see it from the angle too like where it's like I don't want to be afraid of this forever so I have to go back out one more time to prove that like I can still do it and I'm not afraid of it too like there's also like that angle yeah but like it's also okay to be afraid because it's terrifying <laughs> yeah I'm like it's literally his it was rough oh. um <laughs> I, I don't know if this is something in the serving community, but like, like I understand you have to be super, super brave to ride these waves, but you also have to understand that it's also brave to walk away from it because you could be facing backlash from the community and yeah, which is shitty if that does ha- I don't actually know if that happens or not. I'm sure some it, people do. Oh, people sure. Don't. It happens. It's like that. Have you seen that meme that's like around the internet and it's like, um, me watching the Olympics and then it's like, the quote it's like oh I would have stuck that or like you know yeah. this, like Olympic athlete <laughs> doing something and like they fuck it up and they're like oh what a loser it's like, yeah it's like those are the type of people that are like shitting on these Olympic and big wave surfing athletes that are just like oh like you're walking away from something after like you hurt yourself yeah, like, like ah, come on don't be don't be lame yeah but it's like no, you don't like know. they almost died like, it's like you don't know what it's like to go through an injury like that until you experience it or watch somebody else go through it. Like you can't, yes. I'm sorry, you can't like speak to it unless you've experienced you've it. it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, oh, my sources for this are how pro surfer Sean Dollar stayed calm and alive during the terrifying accident that broke his neck in four places by Jeff Truesdell of People Magazine. Uh, the dangers of big wave surfing or Surfing Big Waves and Brain Injuries by Dashiell Pearson of Surfline and Life After Near Death, Sean Dollar by Neil Kearney from Santa Cruz Waves. 
And my sources for like all the information at the beginning, um, I took a lot of it from The Wave by Susan Casey, which is that book that I mentioned that if you want more information on all of this, um, you should read it, uh, especially if you want more information on Laird Hamilton and kind of the science behind a lot of these waves, as well as like stuff about like shipwrecks from rogue waves and the kind of that side of it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's super interesting. And then also, uh, what's the tallest wave ever recorded on earth by Harry Baker from live science. And then the biggest waves in the world from surfer today. And that's kind of where I got all that information about like the biggest waves ever, whatever. Um, Okay, well, that kind of awesome. wraps all um, that, that up. Yeah, I would say uh, some movies, though, about surfing, if they wanted to Ooh. watch anything like this. Because uh, yeah. when you were talking about Mavericks, I was like, why do I know that name? And it's because there is a movie called Chasing Mavericks. It was made in 2012. Gerard Butler is mm. the lead actor in it. Um, and it's based on the life of the love surf- surfing legend Jay Moriarty. And his friendship with his mentor and local legend Rick Frosty Hessen. Uh, so it's a true story set mm-hmm. in Half Moon Bay in California. Right. Um, so if you guys want to check out a surfing movie, there's that one. Soul Surfer is the movie that's about Bethany Hamilton, uh-huh. the girl who lost her arm to a shark ex- or a shark attack. And then um, there's always the classic. Um, I can't fucking think of it. It's got Keanu Reeves in it. Um, oh, point, point Break. Point Break. Yeah, it's also <laughs> a classic Point Break. I was like, I know it starts with a P. Yeah. So there's a couple of surfing movies out there. But Soul Surfer and Chasing Mavericks are two that are based on true stories. And then I'm sure if you just search surfing documentaries on Netflix, there's a bunch out there too. Also, I want to throw this out there because I love this movie and it's hilarious. And so such an underrated animated movie, but surfs up is so good (laughs) oh man I forgot about that it's like they made a a fake surfing documentary and all the surfers are penguins (laughs) yeah it's it's actually like really funny though like and really good um and like mirrors a lot of like stuff that went on with surfing in Hawaii like they used a lot of that for inspiration um and there's a surf's up too wave mania I've never watched it. I'm only recommending the first one. That's funny. Because it is so excellent. Me and Corey love that movie. (laughs) That's super cute. Yeah. Uh, So happy things. Happy things. Um, I need to give my dad a FaceTime call today because it's Father's Day. And I need to tell him that that I want him a trip to Wyoming. (laughs) Oh, does he not know? He doesn't know yet. I called my mom. Yeah, I called my mom after it happened and I was like, I'm telling you this because I need you to make sure dad's going to be around to answer yeah. his phone because yeah. like the the Bushlight team was like, can you record his reaction and send it to us so we can post it for like our Father's Day like compilation winner post kind of thing. So need to do that today. And then lovely boyfriend just made me breakfast. I guess Yay. it's crunch now. So we're about to eat. Yeah, sorry. Um, no, you're good. We're about <laughs> to eat some brekkie sandwiches. And I don't know. We had a nice little boat day yesterday with his friends. So we yeah. are out on the water. I saw a nurse shark, a little, what was it? A little black tip shark. 
he's not listening. It's fine. Um, and I saw a dolphin. Yeah. Lots of fish, lots of birds. Um, and oh, speaking of birds, my mom got me hip to this bird app. It's called Merlin bird ID. Yeah. And have you heard of it? Yes. <laughs> it's so great. I'm yeah. so excited that I have it. Cause I, when I let Waylon out in the morning, like all the birds are chirping. Mm. So I just turn on the sound recording and it picks up all the bird calls that are around mm. and it just like identifies the birds that are around. I'm like, this is so neat. I love this. Yeah. So yeah, that that's my happy things. And then close on the house this week. I know. Thursday. I, I like, if you'll let, cause I know I, you know, can be kind of annoying when everybody has an opinion but if seriously if you want a workshop design like let me know we'll yeah. try to fit it to your aesthetic I will. And everything. I'll send you the videos when I was in there the other day with the contractor I took a lot of videos so uh-huh. I'll send you the videos of it now that like everything is out from the previous tenant yeah and um stuff that I'm I'm thinking I'm just trying to take it one one step at a time yes no absolutely <laughs> yeah no get that but that's exciting yeah what are your happy things um, well, after a long hiatus, uh, Miss Marzipan and her brother re- reunited last night. Um, that's nice because my boss and his family came over for dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been meaning to do this forever. They literally are one street over, but you know, he's, it just life happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so they got reunited. He was a little awkward about it at first, but I think he's just a nervous dog. And I think that's yeah. part of it. But Marzi had a great time. He's like my brother. <laughs> she was so thrilled. Um, and then I guess I'm just looking forward to getting started on this eel project because it's literally going to finally put me back out in the field. Yeah. And I'm also kind of in development of another project that will involve a lot of field work and potentially acoustic telemetry. Ooh, that's fun. So I'll probably talk about that more as that hopefully develops, Yeah, Um, but it's going to potentially be involving tagging alligator gar. Cool. Uh, (laughs) I was just talking about them yesterday, actually, because they are the weirdest fish we've ever caught. And I was like, Gar is kind of a weird fish to catch if you're not used to it or don't know what it looks like. I mean, they look prehistoric. Mm -hmm. They look like dinosaurs and alligator gar are huge. They're so big. Yeah. So you're going to have to practice up on your surgery techniques then, huh? Uh Get a banana or a sock and then a needle and thread and try to practice that way. That's what, when we were doing acoustic telemetry stuff, they were, they were trying to train me up to learn how to do the surgery. And one of the biologists was like if you, you can practice on a banana or like yeah. a sock, like yeah. stuff, a, like stuff, a sock within a sock kind of thing. Yeah. He's like, that's a good way to practice on that. I never got certified or passed the test. I never right. got the chance to do it. I was always the assistant. Gotcha. Well, scalp, that's going to have to be the main person, Yeah, but we have people like from inland fisheries who've done it before. So, um, that's good. Yeah. But that won't be for a little while anyway. Um, but yeah, it'll be the first time I will have ever worked on a big fish. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah. So yeah, because all your stuff has been like shrimp and juveniles. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, cool. That's exciting. Yeah. All right. So let's wrap this up. Yeah. Uh, where can our listeners find us? 
you guys can find us on our website, which is mother pot, mother podcast, mother nature will kill you podcast.com. We're also on Spotify and Apple podcasts and Google podcasts, any streaming platform. You can find us there. We have our Instagram and our Twitter, which is Instagram is mother nature will kill you podcast. Twitter is M N W K Y podcast. And I think that's it. Did I forget anything? I think that's it. I don't that know. It's a mouthful every time. And it's been yeah. a month since I've said all that. <laughs> well, and I've had to do it and I'm like, wait, did I forget anything? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, uh, if you have, uh, fallen off a hundred foot wave, um, and have lived to tell the tale, we want to hear about it, but you don't have to have done that for us to want to hear about it. Um, if you have a story about your own personal survival in nature, or just a time where you just felt uncomfortable in nature, um, you are welcome to send those stories to us to read aloud on the podcast. Um, we have uh, an email as well as a actual like submission uh, spot on our website where you can just type those up and send it to us. Um, and then if you want to support this podcast, but don't have any money because we all live in a capitalist hellscape, you can <laughs> every time gets me every time <laughs> you can give us a five-star review on any of the listening platforms to help push us up the algorithm so hopefully more people see this little goofy podcast <laughs> an endearing podcast yeah we're endearing right yeah. <laughs> yes all right well i think i think that's it <laughs> sounds good to me I'm gonna all right well I'm going to go eat a breakfast sandwich. Yeah. I just needed myself. Oh, the ending. The ending. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, why are you staring at me? Weird. I was like, I'm just going to go eat a breakfast sandwich. All right. Well, until next time, stay safe. But most of all, stay curious explorers. I need to get back on this horse. Yeah. Bye. <laughs>